forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello, I'm Alison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I look surprisingly cute in a hat. Hi, I'm Gabby Don. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I'm posting our TikToks. While we're recording the show? Yeah, I'm a multitasker. <laughs> yeah, we were just talking about how Allison looks cute in a little hat. Yeah, like a little, not a fedora, but like a little... Like Roller a, cap? Maybe. The whole thing is that I, I look cute in a hat, but I don't have the... I don't have the courage to wear a hat. You should wear a hat. I, I've bought them, and then I've been too embarrassed. Do you wear a baseball cap? Will you wear a baseball cap? If, yeah, for like a, to protect my face from the sun. Okay, super cool. Not for, not for the style of it. I Okay, so I was watching Drag Race All-Star 7, and in her ITMs, Trinity the Tuck is wearing... ITM is in the moment, so yeah. it's the straight-to-camera confession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've decided I'm now going to start describing... Explaining what all, I mean. Yeah, <laughs> use a lot of slang and, and abbreviations. Yeah, and she wears this um, hat that's like a green hat with a red rim, and I just... Or underneath, and I just was like, I must have it. And I bought it, and I have not figured out when the right time is to wear a green... Like, a big green hat with a red... <laughs> It's going to have to be like some like it's going to have to be like at an event, like some wedding is it or a something. I'm having a hard time. It is a very it. fancy hat. Oh, well, you could have worn it when the queen died. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been the perfect when time. I was invited to the queen's funeral. Just that day in mourning, you know, out of respect. <laughs> Fuck the queen. Absolutely. Fuck the queen. Uh, wow. I was not expecting that. That was really funny. Well, this is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty, and hats! Lots of hats. Are you, what are you doing for Halloween? Well, first of all, I historically hate to wear a costume, so I never dress up for Halloween, but I have a wedding that weekend. Oh. So you're going to dress up as someone at a wedding? Yeah. I'm going to dress up as someone with a social life. Wait, but... <laughs> Wait, but they but they are having their wedding on Halloween. Well, it's the Friday and Saturday before that's Halloween. That's fun. Also, that's bold. Like I've had a wedding on Halloween weekend two years in a row. Oh, that's what me and Mal should do. You should. Oh my god, we love Halloween. You should do that, and then you should have a costume wedding. Okay, we were watching Gilmore Girls yesterday because we're really on the pulse. Yeah, <laughs> and I hate that show, but it's. Somehow- I was going to say I was surprised you were watching. No, Gilmore. Mal is obsessed with it. Mal loves it. It calms them down. They're like, I love Stars Hollow. Nothing that bad ever happens there. And so they had a Renaissance Fair wedding in one episode. And me and Mal were watching it. And we were like, that looks so fun. You should do a Halloween wedding with costumes. That's like a Renaissance Fair? Well, I guess. But I feel like you guys would like the spooky spook of a regular. Oh, spooky spook. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, I think we should. Melissa, do you dress up for Halloween? I enjoy Halloween. I do enjoy dressing up in costumes, but not on Halloween. Just like sexually? That and <laughs> um, I just, I don't know. I don't trust a lot of people. on. It's too much like going on on Halloween. Amateur hour. And I just don't trust a lot of people running around in disguises. But if it's like a specific costume party, then I'm fine. Interesting. Hmm. What are you going to be this year? I just said I don't dress up on Halloween. Okay, fine. Jesus. I have these little mouse ears that I put in and I say, 
I'm a mouse, duh. Of course. Mean girls. Right. So it'll probably be it. Do you wear like gray sexy lingerie with it? Or just nothing. I mean, it's not Mickey Mouse. Naked with mouse ears? That's someone's fantasy. <laughs> I'm raining, I'm raining this back in. Uh, we have got a great Literally, episode. no one asked me what I'm being. Okay, I'm sorry. What are you gonna be for Halloween this year? I'm gonna be Ron Burgundy. What? Yeah. Anchorman? Yeah. Okay. Because I wanted to do some someone with a mustache. Okay. <laughs> and is Mal going to be one of the characters too? Mal, I think, is going to be Baxter the dog. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I asked. Um, <laughs> we've got a great episode for everyone today. We're going to be asking Kelly Richardson Lawson some tough questions about her Sunrise Project, which also has to do with like young people and children and mental health. And it's such a good conversation. Yeah, she's incredible. Incredible. And later, we'll be talking all about marital hatred. Oh, my God, that article. Oh, my God. <laughs> so we're, we're really on the pulse of, of what's driving people apart. But first, we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means? Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Anonymous UK. I bet they wore a hat when the queen died. <laughs> but this hat, you're not understanding. This is like a flamboyantly gay hat. Well, that could have been a real fuck you to the monarchy. <laughs> okay. Anonymous says, hi, Allison. Oh, wow, I like this. I like mouth. it was just wow. Allison. I don't ever look at the emails. <laughs> Guys, I'm so sorry. I will never once read an email. Okay. <laughs> Wow, what a rush for me. <laughs> Hi, Allison. I have been dating my boyfriend for about 2.5 years now. We met in first year at uni. And uni, that's how you know she's from the UK. Well, also she told us. <laughs> at uni and started dating. However, we ended up living in the same house, but different rooms because we were in the same friendship group and it just worked out like that. I, I've done that. Gibby, okay, I read I'm the sorry. whole email and then we, have a, then we have a whole chit chat. Okay. All right. This year, he is doing a master's in a nearby city about an hour away, which means we had to go long distance. On top of this, I moved into a flat by myself this year. I'm really struggling with being alone and have realized that I am probably more dependent on him than I maybe should have been. It feels like I miss him and need him way more than he does me. He is also my first boyfriend, and I'm really scared of us ever breaking up because we genuinely do work well together, though he has also expressed he wants to one day be in a relationship with a man. He is bi. I've been struggling with being incredibly anxious since moving in and really have cried a lot. Do you have any advice? P.S. I really love the podcast. It helps me through some days. Okay, well, there's a lot going on here. What a short email for so much to be happening. Very succinctly written, but rich in detail. I know. Okay, so here's a thing. For those of you new to the podcast, I am a, bi a bisexual myself. Wait, what? Not only that. Huh? Girl, I'm trans. What? <laughs> This is, okay, where have I been? I've just been in straight world. <laughs> straight world. Doing, doing really a lot of domestic work. <laughs> I've just been, just been doing all the domestic work in straight world. That's so awful. Um, <laughs> you're, you're out here, don't worry, darling, everything. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. The one thing that I want to talk about before we talk about the other thing is that 
just because you are bi doesn't mean that you can say flippant shit like one day I want to be in a relationship with a man. Because that is still you telling your partner that like one day I want to be with someone who isn't you. That's a little. I was going to ask about that. (laughs) Messed up. Uh, Now, as a bi myself, I get it. I understand it. If it was in a conversation about polyamory and it was in a conversation about non-monogamy, it was in a conversation where it was like, I want to be with you. But also like we, you know, to be transparent, like I do want to explore things with men. And like, you know, in that in that situation, I think it would be behoove me to have the experience of being in a relationship with a man, ergo not non-monogamy, but polyamory. Like that is one conversation to just be like, and someday I'll be with someone who's not you. That's not a bi thing. That's a messed up thing. But also, again, flip side, as a bi, I do understand that feeling and I do get it and I do know that it's really real and it is good that he was honest with you about it. But I think that's like more of a a, a poly question and le- and and also I do deeply empathize and understand with that situation as a bisexual but yeah that's like a whole other can of worms my dude yeah I was going to say like does that signify that it's not a long term relationship because there's different advice depending on like the the long-termness and investment of this relationship. And was that a flippant thing or was that an actual conversation that you guys had? And I also have to imagine like how can that not be affecting you? Yeah, of course it makes you feel like you, you, there's no stable ground. Right. Like how like how do we know that it's just an issue of like that you guys are long distance more where the issue might very well be that they, he's acknowledged that one day he doesn't want to be he wants to be with somebody yeah, or else. That you're not like you're not at the same level of commitment. Yeah. Obviously, you're young. You met, you know, in university. You've pretty much been together for two and a half years, which is a long time. But you're also probably, I think, in your early 20s. This is your first boyfriend everything was sort of given to you, right? When you're in college, like your friend group and your boyfriend kind of finds you. Like you're in this structure. I had to hunt for it. Okay. I had to really trap them and they escaped. I'd try to trap them again. They would escape. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Well, what happened to me, and I think what happens to a lot of people is that you kind of fall into this friend group and then you're just like, you date within the friend group, which seems to be what happened to you and and happened to me, too. I started dating the guy I was living with because why not? You know, we're already in the same place. May as well create an entirely chaotic and unsustainable situation in the one safe place where I live. And so we did that. And now you're out on your own. You don't have him. You don't have that group of friends. You're living by yourself. Suddenly, it's not all guaranteed to you. It's not all just around. You do have to do an Allison and go out and look for it and fight for it and find people, which is exhausting and different. And it may, you know, it may be that while you're doing that, you make another group of friends or you meet different people. And like, you're worried about what he's thinking or about him missing you and stuff. But like, maybe that you're scared that you'll, you won't miss him. You know what I mean? Like that you'll start to, you don't want to be like you're scared to take the steps to be independent because it's vulnerable and it's scary and it could change things. And you don't want things to change. You want them to be like they were when it was easy. Yeah, maybe as someone who tends to be pretty attached in relationships and especially when what? I was younger. <laughs> what? Actually, now I am like very chill where like John can just be gone all day and I'm like, whatever. <laughs> I, I like John a whole lot. 
John's great, right? Right. He's great. Yeah. He's a good one. I guess what I'm saying is like, is is this worth it? Like, is mm. this agony worth it? Like, right. you know, it it is a really yucky feeling to feel like you are more invested than your partner. Mm-hmm. And like, that is also a thing that happens, right? Like, relationships ebb and flow. Like, we'll get probably more into this in topics. But like, you know, there will be times where like, you're really into it and they're like more busy and then they're right. really into it and you're more busy. Right. But like if if the status quo for a significant amount of time has been you feeling like you're more invested and more attached and your partner is not living where you live, has said that they hope to one day date someone other than you, like just sort of like examining like it's okay to let this relationship go for now. Like maybe that's okay. Like maybe like maybe I think there's this renaissance fear. era of like, of like you're in the rom-com part where you're like taking ownership and becoming like your own woman or like even just like I think there's this fear of like oh my god if I lose him then I will be so unhappy but it seems like you're already unhappy Mm. like I think that's the thing that I like didn't really ever realize was like I was so afraid of like what would happen when my reality wasn't great like it wasn't like oh this I'm so worried because this relationship's fantastic it was like this relationship's really not serving me that much but it's more this fear of the unknown yeah that I assume is going to be worse whereas like if you're not really happy in the day-to-day if you're feeling kind of disconnected from him if he's like made these statements that make it hard to imagine a long-term future together like it might be one of those things where like taking some time apart and like Gabby and I say all the time like that doesn't mean forever yeah like especially if you're really young like who knows like you can leave things on good terms and just sort of like explore what it's like to have this new stage of your life but I don't think that you have to cling to it it's a comfort if it's blanket. making you sad. It's a comfort blanket, right? You're in a new place. You're without your friends. You're in a flat by yourself. You're holding on to him as like a, a comfort blanket. But you don't or need like, it. like, you know, it's normal to be attached to your partner. Yeah. But like, you know, if, if, if your day-to-day isn't fulfilling and you feel this unequal dynamic, yeah. sometimes cutting the cord is actually a way to care for yourself. Circle back and be like, sorry, when you said you wanted to date someone else, just uh, looking for clarity here. I mean, honestly, I would, I would have like a conversation of like how, like even just being like, how invested should I be in this? Yeah. (laughs) Like of like, is this, cause like if, if it is a long-term thing, if you think this is your person, then I think it's like, okay, then there are things that you can do to just like work on your anxiety to get more comfortable living alone to like push through the discomfort of it all. But if their investment isn't long term, then that kind of work isn't really worth it. And I would rather you be putting in the work to like find your independence and date new people and push yourself in a different way. So I feel like it's really important to sort of have a big conversation with like, what should my investment be here? And are you willing to invest the same amount? And if not, then maybe this doesn't make sense anymore. Hopefully that was helpful. If you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Stick around after the break. We've got a juicy interview with our highly esteemed guest, Kelly Richardson Lawson. Stay tuned. Just between us, it's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting, Tough Questions. 
This week on the show, we have Kelly Richardson Lawson. Kelly is an Emmy Award winning creative visionary and purpose driven business leader with over 30 years of global experience in brand building. She is the founder of the Sunrise Project. The Sunrise Project is dedicated to helping sons and daughters lead mentally healthy lives while providing a safe space to share and support families dealing with mental illness and addiction issues across the country. So awesome stuff. Hello. <laughs> Hi, good to be here. Hello, hello. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, we talk a lot about mental illness on the show and your project seemed like per a perfect fit. So can you explain what the Sunrise Project is? Sure. The Sunrise Project uh, was born out of a need for parents like myself who are working through challenges with our children who have uh, mental wellness challenges and or addiction challenges. Um, it started two years ago, almost three years ago, uh, when our eldest son, who's now 20, was going through some changes, and we didn't understand the changes. And so we decided to, there's a much longer story behind all of that, but in essence, it was born out of a need to have a safe space for parents, Black parents specifically is who we really target, but all parents are welcome. All people are welcome who are caregivers, quite honestly. Our loved ones who are, who are struggling. Um, but we really needed, I needed a safe space to be able to open up, to share, to be vulnerable, to be with other parents that were going through the same thing as me because I felt so alone and so ashamed and so guilty and so in, an, in a dark space. And I didn't feel like there was anyone else that was going through what I was going through and couldn't find a place that was an outlet. So that's what the Sunrise Project is. It is a, a safe space for people to come together every Sunday morning for a live conversation similar to this. And then also we have a podcast available um, with different types of conversations around bipolar or ADHD or signs of someone trying to end his or her life. And so different topics that people can download through the Oprah Winfrey Network podcast. Um, but really the Sunrise Project is, is about helping other caregivers know that the sun always does come out the next morning. Um, even though it might feel really dark, you know, and lonely, the sun always comes out and our children and our sons, I have two sons, our sons will always rise. I actually uh, got really sick with OCD when I was four years old, and I've always credited my parents' sort of like swift intervention as like the reason I'm alive. <laughs> and so, you mm. know, like I, I feel very lucky that they were able to see that something was wrong. Um, but I know that for a lot of parents, there can be this sense of, well, this is a kid. What could be wrong with a kid? or like that they should snap out of it or that they like, well, they don't have any reason to be depressed. And so have you had any sort of pushback from parents who are like, just like kids be kids, we don't need to intervene in this like massive way as they're growing up? Yes. Not only have I had pushback from other parents, I'm, I'm guilty of that, actually. And my husband and I are guilty of that. So um, you're what a blessing for you to have parents or your mom or whomever it was to say, you know, there might be something that we should look into here. I think there, particularly in the Black community, there's such shame and stigma around mental health and people don't talk about it. There's a lot of people that will say, just go pray. Let's go to church. God's going to work it out. And yes, I believe in God. I have faith. Absolutely. Faith over fear. I also believe in therapy and I also believe in if, you know, if you see signs of something being a little different in your child, 
acknowledging those and being willing to, you know, explore that there might be something that needs to be addressed. There's nothing wrong with the child necessarily. There really isn't, but there might be some illness or something that needs to be addressed. Just like if there's a physical illness, when there's a physical illness, we take medicine, we go to the doctor. If somebody has um, a horrific disease, we say, okay, let's get them treatment. If there's a mental wellness challenge, we need to get the person treatment and get over the stigma, acknowledge that there could be something that needs to be addressed and then actually do something about it. So I think, yes, there are a ton of people that said, oh, he's just being a boy. Oh, he's just being rambunctious. When sometimes it might be that, yes. And sometimes it might be something more that needs to be addressed. And the earlier we can address it, like you said in your case, the better for the children, for society, for the parents, for the relationship, for the household, for all of that. So I have seen that and I've experienced it firsthand. I also think there's this sense of like, well, if my child is suffering, then it's my fault. Right. And so then it's like, well, I don't want if I if I address the suffering, then I have to have this like reckoning with my parenting and with whatever, you know, generational trauma I'm bringing to my child or like bad habits. But like in reality, so much of this stuff can be biologically based, genetically based. It can be based off of things that are happening outside of the home. And so have you kind of like worked with parents to take the blame off of themselves? Yes. When it comes to blame and shame, that is the first thing I talk about with parents. We have to give ourselves grace and know that there's no guidebook and that we're doing the best we can. Most parents are doing the best we can. All parents, I shouldn't say all, most parents (laughs) want the best for their children. They want their children to feel love and to feel supported and thrive and to grow up and be the best versions of themselves. However, just like you said, many of us place blame on ourselves. I can speak from experience. I did that as well. When I looked up and said, oh gosh, what could be wrong? Why is he unhappy? Why does he seem so sad? What's wrong? Why does he want to stop swimming? You know, this was a young man who was going into ninth grade and had been invited to the Olympic Training Center to come out and swim. So we saw, you know, my husband and I saw signs and and had all these aspirations for him to get a full scholarship and to, you know, do all these things that we had designed for his life when the reality was he didn't want those things. And so when, you know, he first tried to end his life, there was a massive amount of guilt, a massive amount of what did I do wrong? Was I not here enough? Was I traveling too much? Why didn't I see the signs? What's wrong with me? Oh my gosh, I must be such an awful parent. How could my beautiful, smart, straight A, athletic kid be in so much pain that we didn't even see it? We didn't see it coming until we were sitting in the hospital that night. And so the guilt and the shame is huge. It's massive. And what I've learned through so many sessions with the Sunrise Project and so many experts, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist, I'm just a mom you know, that has been chosen in this lifetime to help other people and myself. But back to your question, the guilt and the shame was real and is real for most parents that we blame ourselves. And we say, why didn't we do? Why didn't we see it? Why didn't I give more time? Why did I yell at him? Did I scream too much? Was the punishment too much? So all these self-doubts and getting over that with loving ourselves, learning to forgive ourselves, looking in the mirror and saying, I forgive you for all the times you raised your voice. I forgive you 
for, you know, there's self, there's forgiveness that needs to happen with parents. There's love and compassion that we have to give ourselves. And ultimately we have to give ourselves grace to look inside and say, we did the best that we knew how. It may not have been the best that could be done, but it's the best that we did, you know? And so having grace with ourselves and I share that message frequently with others because there is so much guilt and there is so much um, hurt. And you touched on it, the intergenerational trauma that's often not dealt with that then continues. You know, we parent like we're parented typically. And so I know that's a long-winded answer, but yes. No, it's perfect. Guilt and shame and self-doubt, all of those things come into play. And it takes a long time. For me, it has. I'll speak for myself. Therapy, the weekly calls, people saying, it's okay. You know, it's okay. We're going to get through this. And what I, can, what I do now with my 20-year-old and my 17-year-old young men, I really focus on the relationship and creating a space for a great relationship versus being right. And I think, you know, when they were growing up, I focused on being right. And like, you know, I, it was my way, which is like, that's not what they wanted. Their journey is their journey. The sooner we as parents understand that that journey that my husband and I looked at and said, he's going to go be an Olympic swimmer, the first black to do this. this, this he's going to go do this and he's going to get a full scholarship. All of those things that we had designed for him. He didn't want those things. He just wanted to be a kid. Yeah. He wanted to like sleep until 6 a.m., which is normal. Not get up at 4 a.m. to go to practice. Like I look back now and go, he just wanted to be a ninth grade kid and go to school at a normal time. You know, all of those things are perfectly fine. We spent all those years trying to fix him, sending him to treatment, sending him to wellness, doing all these things, trying to fix him when it was us that needed to be fixed. Not him. He's perfectly awesome the way he is. So the guilt and the shame is real and it's hard to get over that. And all we can do is say, we did the best we can. Can't get the time back, but we can from this day forward, create new possibilities. I wanted to ask why the specificity of the black community? And I think it was interesting when you were talking about your son and you were saying, well, we put pressure on him to be the first black X, Y, and Z, the first black X, Y, and Z. And I think like that is a relatable thing for parents of of uh, minority children. So uh, can you speak a bit about like the extra pressures and why you decided that this community specifically needed like help in terms of mental health? The reason I believe for me and for my family to focus on when we created the Sunrise Project, Black parents specifically, is because there are significant differences that we face having Black sons in this country. And I have two beautiful, talented Black sons that in this country, they're born guilty. They're born just by default of being Black as people that are inferior, that are not smart, that are thugs, that are criminal, just by the color of their skin. And we actually did a study for one of our clients for my day job. It's called the Black Male Study. We looked at perceptions and stereotypes of Black men and boys in this country. Looked at 2,000 people, 1,000 white, 1,000 boys, and asked um, 1,000 white, 1,000 Black, and asked the same questions. 
And what we saw in that study was overwhelmingly what we already know is that Black men are stereotyped, as I mentioned. And so over two times more likely to be seen as criminal. And I could go on and on. The study is on our website, thecrownact.com, for that particular client. And so oftentimes as Black parents, there's a fear for our children. The second they walk out the door, I just want them to come home safely. And that is different for being parents of Black boys. It is different. And, and it's hard to explain. There is a video that was done several years ago called The Talk by a brand called My Black is Beautiful. We've all had the talk as kids, and we have to give the talk as parents. And it's the talk around what happens if you ever get pulled over by the police. Put your hands on the wheel. Don't make any moves. Don't touch anything. Don't leave your, you know, those types of things. What happens if somebody approaches you? You know, keep your hands out of your pocket. You know, stay straight. Don't make eye contact. You know, these things that are different and they're real. And the stereotypes and the, the fear that we have is different. And so that is part of the reason why the, um, the Sunrise Project was originally created specifically for Black parents. The second reason is that my husband and I went to visit our eldest son at a residential treatment facility that we sent him to. He was only smoking marijuana. Now, mind you, I know this now. I look back and go, really wasn't a big deal. But it was a huge deal at that time to us. Like, oh, my God, like smoking marijuana. Oh, my God. So we, why was it such a big deal? Well, it might make him not get his college scholarship. He might have to stop swimming. It was going to hurt his lungs or all these. We were afraid, fear. And so we were at this residential treatment facility one Saturday also in shock, looking around like, how do we end up here? How did this happen? Like, you know, what, what happened? And the parents in the room, just like us, you know, in pain and in crisis, trying to help what we thought what we were doing was the right thing for our children, trying to help them, you know, get well and get off of the, their addictions. And I remember having these conversations and answering questions and engaging with all these strangers that had a connected energy and realizing that our issues were the same, but yet so different. And in those moments, I was like, they can't even understand. Like this is what I'm saying is not even in their psyche at all because they've never had to deal with that. They've never had to deal with those fears of, you know, police and actually being afraid of what might happen or what might happen in school if our child has braids, what people might say to them. That's just a microaggression or mean. So in that moment, I felt really alone. And I remember getting back home and like bawling up on the couch and just, you know, I'm like, gosh, there's just nowhere for me to talk about the fact that we were parenting out of fear over faith and parenting in a space that was so punitive. Like, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do that because of the fear. And at the time that we were going through a lot of these things, George Floyd was murdered, Rayshawn Brooks was murdered. There were all these horrific things happening that made our fear spike even higher than it always had been. So that was why I felt like we needed a space where we could talk about the racial trauma that was happening in this country. I call it the twindemic. We had COVID-19 happening. We had a lot of our kids suffering, which is universal people were suffering. I'm not saying that that's not the case. But the racial reckoning in this country and what was happening and 
what's always been happening, but it was front and center for the first time for many people that never saw what happens, what's been happening for 400 plus years. So it's a long-winded answer, but that's why there were two reasons. Like there's different, it's different being a Black parent and in this country, it just really is. And then on top of that, my personal experience was like super, I felt really alone. And I also felt such embarrassment. You touched on it earlier, was so embarrassed. Uh, I wonder if other people are going through this and then started talking about it. The more, you know, Jay-Z says, the more you heal, the more you don't heal till you reveal. So once I started talking about it, other people would say, oh my God, I'm going through the same thing. Oh, I just thought he was being bad. You know, it's like, no, it's not a bad kid. There's some, you know, so that's why. You know, I think that you're touching on something that's so true in that, like, it can be, we, you know, there's so many studies, there's so much research that shows that, that, that black children are treated differently in the classroom and that they are held to a higher standard. And if that they misbehave in any way, then they are reprimanded more that like, it's just different. And so I imagine that then, you know, allowing maybe the flexibility or allowing the kind of tailored parenting or care that a child struggling with their mental health may need is harder because you're like, you you have to behave or else there are real world ramifications. Whereas a white child who is maybe struggling, there's uh, the ability for more leniency and freedom towards how they're treated because there is not this fear that they will be viewed immediately as quote unquote bad. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. And you look at the prison population, you look at what happens, you know, every day, like you said, I walking down the street, people crossing the street because they're scared. There's a great letter that came out a couple years ago. I think it was in Glamour magazine. And it's a wonderful letter that talks about, it says, Dear Parents of My Black Son's Friends. And it talks about the importance of speaking up and saying something. Because when they're little bitty kids and they're all five-year-olds running around, everybody's happy. But the second I have a six-foot-two brown-skinned man, then there's like this fear. It's like, oh, well, it's, you know, the same kid. But there's something that happens internal in people's psyche. It's not even, a lot of times you don't even know it's happening. It's because of what you talked about. It's because of deep-seated, you know, racism. And sometimes people don't even know it exists. But there is a great letter that talks about what you just said, how, you know, everybody needs to rally around this issue and say, it's not okay to think that just because somebody has brown skin that they're a bad person. They're not. Yes, I could go there for hours. And schools, you know, the children that get sent to the principal, the children yep. that get the C versus given the grace to get a B, the children that are like, oh, they're really bad. They're really defiant. No, maybe they actually have ADD, ADHD. And they just, you know, they've not been diagnosed properly. I remember I'll share this quick story. My little one, my little one, my six foot something little one who's 17, my baby, we had just moved back from Texas to Maryland and we were um, kindergarten day. And so I, like all the other moms of the little kindergartners, was there, you know, watching from afar, trying not to be, you know, crazy parent. And he goes running across the playground, running across like every other kid, like every other kid, they're running. And this lady goes, you, what the such is? And she calls him out. The only little black kid running. Stop running. And she screams at him. He looks up, all afraid. And 
you better believe I marched my little butt right up there, but it was the one black kid that got yelled at and he stopped in his tracks and looked all afraid. And how does that feel when you're five years old and you're being singled out as a five-year-old for running across the parking lot like the other kids? Of course, I marched my little butt right across the parking lot, had lots of words with her, made a formal complaint. She's no longer there. And that this was 12, 13 years ago. But what if I hadn't seen that? And what if I hadn't done anything about it? What if I wasn't there watching and I saw it and said, oh, no, 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 no. How often does that happen to our kids? And then they're five, looking up at a 45, 50-year-old woman, not knowing why they're being yelled at. Why are they being singled out? And they can't speak up for themselves. So that happens all the time. And so that, that's another reason why I think there's a need because there's so much pain that we have and we try to take it all for our kids, you know, but. Again, every morning, my 17-year-old drives, he's a swimmer also, drives to swim practice. And I am on pins and needles till he walks back in the door. You know, just, it's dark outside. Want to make sure he gets where he's going. He has braids, you know, and he's 4.6 GPA. But on the surface, you would never know that for most people, you know, and how great of a kind, sweet kid he is. So they just see this muscle, muscle-bound guy with these braids with his AirPods in that work properly <laughs> and uh, blasting his music. So, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting world we live in. Hopefully we won't be this way all the time one day and people will have be open to all people. I think you're also up against the kind of problematic history with the mental health field as well. Where like, you know, absolutely it's easy to say like, oh, just go to therapy. But I think a lot of the black community is distrustful of the mental health field for good reason. A hundred percent. So what has that been like to sort of work through? So funny that you say that. It's not funny, but it's funny because it's ironic. So, yes, a hundred percent. So the only four percent of doctors in this country are black. Four percent. We represent 14 percent of the country. And then you think about what used to happen to people's bodies being experimented on. And then you right. go to 1972 and you look at the Tuskegee experiment, the U.S. Right. public health syphilis study on untreated black right. men, 625 black men used as guinea pigs. So, yes, there's a huge distrust in the medical field. And then you put on top of that that. In our community, including my family, you know, my grandmother had bipolar. No one talked about it. I have a cousin who I haven't seen in 40 years. No one talks about it, you know, and it's like, it's just this interesting dynamic of Southern Black. It's not just Southern Black. That's not fair to say. But in the Black community, in our community, there's a stigma. And so, and there's a distrust, huge distrust, as you said. So there's the stigma, there's the distrust. And then it's like, I'm not doing that. I'm not going, I'm not going to go to the doctor. I'm not going to go to the therapist. What do they know about me? Especially if there's only 4% and even less in the psychology field or psychiatry field, it's hard to find a, a doctor that can relate to what you're talking about. Not to say you shouldn't, because you can go to psychology today or NAMI or other places to find you know, a person that you feel comfortable with and you find those people sometimes and it takes weeks to get an appointment. I just got an email today before I was on with you that said, hey, I'm really struggling. We had an episode last weekend with a specialist on ADHD and she sent me an email and said, I know it's late. I'm really having a hard time. Can you please connect me with the doctor that was on on Sunday? 
And so, of course, I emailed her right back. I connected with my the doctor, sent a text saying, hey, please check your email. Because a lot of people, like, you might be like this too. I have thousands of emails. I do my best. But the point is, yeah, there's massive distrust. There's massive distrust for good reason, as you said. Um, and our job is to get over that, ideally, and get people to go, you know, ask for help, get the help they need, get the medication they need, if they need that. Um, and just feel it's okay to not be okay and just talk about it, you know, to really talk about it. A lot of times with parents, the idea that a, a mental illness or addiction is biological or is genetic can be really hard. I think for my, I have bipolar too. And for my mom, it, it made her feel like she was a bad mom because she was passed that on to me or, you know, her mother passed it on to her. Or, you know, my father's an addict. And so, you know, certain people in my family, I think, have addictive qualities. And so, like, you can say to yourself, well, I was a good parent or, you know, I did the best I can. Um, but how is it working with people who feel that genetically they or, you know, that they feel guilt or something that their child has the same issues that they have? So that's a really interesting question, because I have read certain studies that do say there are genetic traits, you know, especially if you think about, you know, alcoholism as an example. Mm -hmm. I know I read a whole book on alcoholism. My dad was an alcoholic. I have another um, family member who's an alcoholic. My son is an alcoholic, self-described at 20. And in that particular book I read and a couple other books I have, there are genetic tracers. There were two mice. One was given, one was the mouse of a a mouse that had drank, you know, alcohol. The other one had not. And they put out two bowls of alcohol. The one that came from that lineage went to it, tasted it, and was like, ooh, and kept going. The other one went, tasted, never touched it again. So I read a, some, a couple of times at places that there are genetic, you know, tracers. Not to say that it's automatic, mm -hmm. but there is a predisposition with certain things. It's like when our DNA with dementia, Alzheimer's, right. you can actually see potential tracers. So like, do you think it's like the parents have to come to terms with and treat their own genetic stuff without feeling like, okay, now I'm to blame for my kid? We should not. Yes, 100% agree with you. And we should not whether it's your mom or me with my children or my parents with me, we, you know, our DNA is our DNA. What makes us up is what makes us up. And we're not, we should not be blaming ourselves for anything. And it's something like bipolar or ADD or depression, anxiety, that's nothing to be ashamed of. It's like if you were to get, if you were to have diabetes, you wouldn't be ashamed of having diabetes, I don't think. It's nothing to be ashamed of. That's the key learning. That's why I tell parents, okay, you have bipolar, so do I. I'm ADD. Well, who cares? Like it's, it is what it is. The point is to know what it is, to treat it like you would treat any illness and to not have stigma against it because it's a mental illness versus a physical illness. That's the key. Yeah. How do we get people to get over that? And if you're a parent and you, you act like you hate that part of yourself, it shows that to the kid. Like, you know, my mom refusing to admit that she had bipolar disorder, you know, 
it, it trickles down to me the same way that when she talks about not liking her nose, but we have the same nose. It trickles down to you and you start to be like, well, if my parent hates this part of themselves, then I guess I should hate this part of myself. That's exactly right. Oh, and that's so telling. That's exactly right. So doesn't <laughs> it all start with self-love? It starts with self-love. Yeah. At night, I literally hug myself when I get in the bed. I get on my side and I hug myself when I say, I love you. And uh-huh. it starts there. Because, but it's serious. That's also how I warm myself up. But, but literally, I say, I love you. And I have to do that because I have to remind myself. And to your point, showing our children, we love them. It starts with your own self-love, you know? If mm-hmm. you can't feel love for yourself and you can't look in the mirror and say, yeah, you know, I'd like to be 20 pounds smaller, but whatever. <laughs> There's not self-hate there. Oh, yeah. Because otherwise, then, to your point, when I say, oh, I'm, I'm a little extra big these days, you know, my size 10, somebody would be grateful to be a size 10 or a 12. You know, maybe I'm a 14, I don't know. But the point is, I agree with you, what you're saying about your mom and how we have to love ourselves and then project that in the world. So our children love themselves too. Yeah. Oh, the mom, the mom eating disorder to child eating disorder pipeline. We don't have time. That's a whole nother conversation. (laughs) A whole nother conversation. One day I'll talk about it. I, I also think there's something to be said about sometimes there's an expectation that, okay, I'm taking care of my child's mental health by getting them into therapy, but they're only in therapy one hour a week, maybe Mm -hmm. two hours a week. And it's about what they're with you the majority of the time. And so working with the therapist, being open to changing your own behavior, being able to, to make a change in yourself and your parenting, which it sounds like you very much did. Like, is that kind of the, the tricky step where it's not just like, get your kid in therapy, it's like also you might have to significantly change how you interact with your child. Yes, that part. That part, yes. The whole point of everything we do at Sunrise is to help people realize it's not about trying to change your kid, your child, your loved one. It's about changing yourself. It took me two years to realize that. Two years. If I had realized that sooner, you know, things may be different, you know, but the reality is you can't send a kid away to try to get them fixed. You need to show them, no matter who you are, like whatever we're dealing with, I love you. I got you. I love you for who you are. Radical love, radical acceptance. No matter what, I'm here for you. And we're going to get through this. Kids just want to be loved. People just want to be loved. And the sooner we get to that part and fix ourselves. When I say fix, I don't mean, you know, fix like, you know, a tune-up. I mean, like really work on ourselves. Like, Why is it that there's shame if my kid doesn't want to go to college? Who cares? Right. Who decided that college is the right place for people to go? What if he wants to just sleep in and be in his pajamas all day? And then we work on that. You know, what if he wants to just really say, mom, I want to just watch movies? Okay. We were not okay with that. So the sooner we right. say, you know what? He's perfectly fine the way he is. And we walk on ourselves. It's not okay to just be like, I'm going to send him to a wilderness camp. I'm going to send him off to some tra- treatment place. Right. I'm going to get him in therapy every week, like you just said. That's, that's, maybe that's okay for some. But most importantly, it's changing the parent's perspective and paradigm to be open to just pure, unconditional love so that that child knows no matter what, you love them. 
And then and you open up a space of faith and love instead of fear, it opens up a whole new dynamic. I also think not as a parent, but, you know, I imagine that it is very difficult to realize that you might have to parent your different children completely differently. Mm. That like what works for one kid might not work at all for the other kid. Yes. It reminds me of a principle I learned a long time ago called the um, platinum rule. Because the platinum rule is one step beyond the golden rule. It's a diversity concept that talks about do unto others the way they would have you do unto them. Because if you do unto others the way you would have them do unto you, that says that you want other people to adapt to you. But to your point, if one child wants round pancakes with little edges and the other one wants dinosaur pancakes, the other one, one child wants one type of syrup, the other person wants no syrup. That's like, I end up being like a shorter cook, but that's to that point, trying to adapt (laughs) to the child. So it's like, and I'm very serious about that. It's like, you know what? People like different things, different ways. And eating is a good example of that. Like how you like your food is different than how you like your food. Different people like different things. But if we just do it in that perspective, it's like, and you would adapt to that child, it makes life so much better. I am a living witness to that. And just letting them be. I mean, I'll I'll remember my little one, again, it just cracks me up because he's six foot something tall, but he's still my baby. My little one saying one day to my mom, who was in town, saying, it's time to get up and get dressed. It's time to take a shower. We have to go. And he said, Nana, it's okay to have a pajama day sometimes. And that was like this huge, and I remember he was like five. I remember my mom looking around like, what? And I think I stopped in in my tracks. And he was like, Cause I'm not, we don't, I don't even know how to take a nap. I've never, I don't do that. It's like, I'm constantly, <laughs> okay. so I'm like, what? You know, normally normal, again, that air quotes, normal. What's normal? You want to take a nap? You want to stay in your pajamas all day on a Saturday? Go for it. And mm-hmm. yet that's not how I grew up. And so I parent the way I grew up. We were up, up and at them by seven, eight in the morning. And we had a whole long list of things to do, a whole bunch of chores. It was never just lay around and hang out. And yet there's nothing wrong with that at all. Right. See, one child might thrive on having a lot of activities and routine and like being involved in a ton of different sports or hobbies, whereas another child might be really introspective and just want to spend a Saturday reading and being able to say like, both those things are okay. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. They're both okay and more than okay. And that's the key. And you said this already, like the parent learning to parent differently, the parent learning to love ourselves and project that on our child. Like, cause you're right. I love the comment you made earlier. If you say, oh, I hate my nose and your child has the same nose, that's super jacked Mm -hmm. up. But you know what? But it happens all the time and you don't even think about it as a parent. Yes, agree. Oh, this has been so wonderful. Yes, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. I've enjoyed it being here. Where can people find out more about you and everything that you're doing? Oh, wonderful. We are at um, thesunriseproject.com. It's S-O-N, like having a son and a child, thesunriseproject.com. That's our website. And then you can listen to our podcast anywhere podcasts are found on the Oprah Winfrey Network of Podcasts. Nice. Thank you so much. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. Just between. 
fact, just between us, it's time for hypothetical. We know you guys love it when uh, Melissa joins us for hypotheticals. And our guests had a hard out, so it worked out. You think everybody knows what a hard out means? It means they had to go at a certain time. We only got her for 45 minutes and we had to just squeeze all the knowledge out of her that we could. Violent. Instead of playing the game. You do look rather evil. I look at evil? Yeah. What? Halloween! You're going, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But now, are you excited that you get to play hypotheticals? I am. Okay, because you didn't read it, right? I didn't read it. Okay, fantastic. Also, Melissa's wearing her glasses, and I just want to note the sexy librarian of it all. Thank you. There's a reason Allison has to sit in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because it used to be Gabby in the middle. For Melissa's own safety, honestly. Is it safety, though? Don't flirt with Gabby because Gabby can't tell when you're joking. Also, anyone who has ever joke flirted with me became real within a year. It did. Well, I feel like that's a lie when it comes to me. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like you've only started flirting more recently. Exactly. So So we'll see. It starts from the first flirt. Okay. Not from knowing. Okay. So we'll check back in in about eight months. Um, (laughs) Mark the date. It's October 14th at 12.07 p.m. Mark it. Okay. So if this happens to be your first episode, Hypotheticals (laughs) is a game (laughs) where Gabby and Melissa are my contestants. I'm going to give a series of hypothetical situations. They can ask any clarifying questions they might have. And then they tell me what they would do in that situation. And I determine whose answer I like best. Or we just have a really thoughtful discussion about it. Totally. Here's our first game. America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? You find out that your partner of seven years briefly. (laughs) What? What is this going to be? You find out that your partner of seven years briefly made out with your mom at Thanksgiving. What? Because they were both drunk and talking about how much they love each other. This Thanksgiving? Yeah. They say it felt more friendly than sexual. Would you stay with this cheater? No, no, absolutely not. Visceral reaction to this. No, I will vomit. Like, no, no, just a little kiss, kiss. No, No. (laughs) not a little. You said a makeout. That is not a little. No tongue, but just a little. No, that's not a makeout. I'm disgusted. You can make out without tongue. Yeah, like you're on TV. Yeah. No. <laughs> you guys always make out with tongue. Yes. Yes. Oh, God. I'm not falling for this again. <laughs> this is an old prank. Oh, is it? Yeah. Yes. If you go back to our channel and look up Allison Kisses with Tongue, one, you'll see me and Allison making out. But two, yeah, that was a long standing prank. My best work, my greatest accomplishment. It was such a long con. So, like, you wouldn't just, and, and like, you wouldn't just, like, accept that they maybe got caught up in the holiday no, festivities. No. in holiday festivities. Thanksgiving is in make, the sexy holiday. No, absolutely not. You, you're, like, no. your pants are unbuttoned, like. Could it be, what if it was a different holiday? No, no, no. holiday. What about New, Yom Kippur? New Year's Eve. <laughs> Probably not and then they could immediately, house, so. and then they could immediately atone for their sins. No, absolutely not. Hard no. Fine. Well, my mom also has problems with boundaries. Like you're just inviting more trouble. Like no, don't give her an inch; she'll take a mile. Okay. I love you, mom. She listens to this now. <laughs> that has been the most, the most disgusting hypothetical. I am so yeah, absolutely. Everyone's so mad at me, but okay. 
I understand. I what just wanted you to do? test. I just wanted to what test the boundaries. John made out with roots. <laughs> exactly. Yes, I didn't think about it for myself. She does look like you. I know. That's a component for sure. Yeah. I think we all look like our moms. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. Our second one. Love you, mom. Are you a terrible parent? Your child, 12, has decided they don't really like dogs, <gasps> even though you love dogs <gasps> and already have one as a family. <gasps> In order to change their mind, you get a foster dog and tell them that they can only get their allowance if they take care of the foster dog and sleep with it every night. Unfortunately, the foster dog is not well trained and pees on their head while they are sleeping, causing them to dislike dogs even more. Are you a terrible parent? Absolutely. No. Why? Whoa. What do you mean? You can't force somebody to like something that they don't like and then force them to take care of it. With It's basically a bribe because you're paying them their allowance money. I hate this situation. Wow. You're My child doesn't like dogs. I'm giving the child back. To who? The shelter. I'm taking the, the dog. I'm taking the dog and the child's going to the shelter. And that I feel fine saying after our lovely conversation we just <laughs> but had. It's also like you, this is not even like the family pet. So you're just buying a dog. Well, not buying, fostering a dog just to essentially torture your child. No, Why because the not? dog, the dog needs a home. It's a, but, it's a wonderful thing to, to foster a dog. But you're putting a dog with somebody that doesn't want a dog. Why don't they like dogs? It's not that into them. Okay. I'm not into cats. And if somebody forced me, I have been in a situation when I've had to forcibly take care of a cat. And I didn't like it. What they happened? They didn't give you, bur weren't like the worms in your brain that makes you like cats? No. No. Weird. What Did happened? You give me kisses on its head. I just don't, I just don't like the energy of cats. Yeah, they're no. scary. No. Some of them are really good. Okay. And that's fine. But I'm saying like, that's fine. Me and Mal have a cat now. Yeah, now you do. How'd you feel about the cat first? Oh, Mal hated the cat. Exactly. And then now Mal loves the cat so much. Mm. It's the only thing Mal loves yeah. in this world is a, this stupid cat. I had a roommate that would just like go out of town and wouldn't tell me and then have to take care of the No. Cat. Oh, so you you're traumatized. I lived with the cat. You it, didn't ever pet it? I did, but it just wasn't my thing. Like, I just wasn't into the cat. Yeah. What if it had peed on your head? I definitely would not be into the cat. Okay, so we're divided on this one. Yeah. But we do all agree that dogs are awesome. Yes, 100%. Amazing. Fair enough. Our final scenario. Would you forgive this liar? You are interviewing for a job when your potential employer asks if you have any questions for them. You say, how is the office coffee? They laugh. Say <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> they laugh and reply, I've heard it's some of the best in the business. You end up getting and taking the job only to find out that the company doesn't provide any coffee. Would you forgive this liar? No. Well, as someone who doesn't drink coffee, uh, I wouldn't really care. But if I in this situation, wow. in this situation, I am a coffee, coffee drinker. Kind of a bold lie. But it depends on their uh, outlook on life. Are they talking about the business as right. in the business that they work at? Mm. It's like their company, so it's the best within the company. Not the but best there isn't in the any. It doesn't exist. Yeah, and to them, if they hate coffee, that is the best in the business. Exactly. So they're not lying. Oh well, I think they're lying. It's like when I say I went to Emerson, and people go, "Oh, great film school," and I go, "Oh, fantastic film school," and I don't say if I went there or not. 
I didn't do that. I didn't attend the film school. I just let people think that I did. I'm not lying. I'm I'm repeating. I'm saying, yeah, great film school. Um, would I? I wouldn't trust the whole company. I I don't trust most companies. Oh, okay. Like, what companies do you trust? You should just be. I trust Patagonia. I trust my company. I yeah, maybe yeah. (laughs) We work with you as a company, and we shouldn't trust you. Do I provide coffee for you? What water? Yeah, water. That's it. And Melissa? it's the best co- it's the best water in the business. <laughs> <laughs> it gets I, delivered. <laughs> I posted a, a picture of like something I was doing and in it was like a tall boy of Coke and like something else that Red I was Bull. drinking, a oh. Red Bull and a Diet Coke. And Melissa just wrote back, drink water. <laughs> and I laughed so hard and Mal thought that it was like I was flirting with someone and I said, no, it's just Melissa telling me to drink water. Well, I think maybe that was a flirt as we're learning. She cares about me. I just, I mean, you just don't drink water while you're here. I have a whole water bottle at home that I drink out of. Melissa's like, I've never seen you drink water. (laughs) That's the point. Unless I give it to you, you don't drink it. I'm a baby. Would you forgive the boss? No. No. Would you quit the job? Well, no, I probably need a job in this economy. <laughs> That's what I, I'm strictly like you show up to get a paycheck and leave. It's like a court. That's my situation. quiet quitting is every day. I just bring the biggest. I'm five minutes late with the biggest iced coffee they've ever seen. I would just not trust. Well, because I would just it would just really throw me about what kind like could I believe anything they said about the job or the right. expectation? like it would really. So I guess we don't right. forgive them, but we still work for them. Yeah. Well, huh, isn't that isn't that the way it goes? I, I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, that's just how it is. Capitalism. Mm-hmm. Right. Get your coffee on their dime. Don't clock out. Yeah. Use your company card. Yeah. Write it off. Exactly. This is both like a job where we have to clock <laughs> in and out and have a company card. That exists. That very much does exist. Name a job like that. Uh, when I actually, I used to work at a coffee company. <laughs> <laughs> and that eventually got bought by a blue bottle. And uh, I did clock like I had to like clock in, but I also had a company card. What did you use the company card for? Uh, Lunch. When you were out did whining and cl- dining. <laughs> did you have to unclick for your lunch? Check out? Can you tell Allison's never had a job? I've had a job. <laughs> I worked at Crabtree and Evelyn one summer. All right. So, yeah, I didn't have to clock out. I was just there. Right. All right. I, and that's actually not the first. I, when I was in college, I worked at a like health company and I had a company card. I had to clock in and I also had a company car. I had a Hummer. What? <laughs> yes. So a health food company ha- gave you a Hummer? A Hummer? Yeah. Is that sort of not? That cancels each other yeah. out. Okay. But they were like bodybuilders, so it's not like it was like healthy. Oh, uh, okay. More about big yeah. taking up space was yes. their main <laughs> pieces. <laughs> Same with the hum. Yeah. Oh my god. What a storied life you've lived. <laughs> wow. Um, all right. Well, stick around after the break. We're gonna be talking all about marital hatred. Ugh. To just between us, it's time for topics. X X X X X X X baby, baby, baby. Wow, oh, nice, beautiful. If it's your first time listening to the show, what do you think we we do? <laughs> <laughs> just wondering. 
<laughs> this week's topic is a hot, hot off the presses. Good Lord. The, the, the concept of marital hatred. You know how I found out what this was? Because I'm in a Reddit called Are the Straits Okay? Mm-hmm. And it was a discussion there. So do you want to explain what that is? So basically there was an article that came out in the Washington Post a bit ago at this point, because I'm not that current with the trends. Uh, basically it was talking about how it's normal to hate your spouse and that marital hatred is, an, is a regular occurrence and not something to be worried about. Mm-hmm. And um, I just kind of wanted to raise the idea of like, do you agree with that or is that bonkers? Okay, here's the thing. I do enjoy a good think piece that is saying something that would be unthinkable. Like I enjoyed like that one piece about that woman who with the I yell at Waldman writing about how uh, she liked her husband more than her kids. Like I, I enjoy putting the, the inside thought out. However, and not to say that I think agree with them, but I, I do enjoy I'm like, yeah, that's writing. Like, go for it. But I am confused as to the renaming of stuff that already exists to be something quirky, like quiet quitting, like marital hatred, like marital hatred has existed since the dawn of time. Like it's it's been here. A lot of sitcoms revolve around that. It's already a thing. And I feel like a lot of like people that are in a marriage is like they don't particularly like their spouses. Right. So my issue is the word hatred. Yeah. So I think that like there is a people have talked a long time about that like, you know, there will be times where things are rough with that marriages have good patches, bad patches, that there will be times when you're annoyed with your partner. But to me it's the use of hatred. Right. That's weird. That feels too extreme. And I actually don't think that that is something that we should be normalizing. No, I don't no. think it should be normalized, but I do think it is normal. Unfortunately, common. It's common. I think being annoyed with and being fed up with and being like needing space and time is is common. But hatred is a level of 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 resentment and content, like being like having contempt for your spouse that I do think signals that something is not uh, okay. Like contempt is like one of like the signals of yes. like of like the four apocalypse or yes. like the four henchmen, henchmen of, of the apocalypse oh my in God. a relationship. My therapist like, just sent me this. Yeah, like it's like there's a couple things that if you are seeing happening in your relationship, it's like actually really not like it, it's a mm-hmm. signal that you really need to reset and work through. And contempt is one of them. Mm-hmm. And to me, contempt and hatred kind of go hand in hand. And I think that like. I don't know. Like, I also think that it takes a lot of work to not let yourself go there with a spouse mm-hmm. and normalizing marital hatred is actually could end up having a really negative effect because it could like when you're feeling those moments of like annoyance, you could then let yourself drift into mm-hmm. hate mm-hmm. instead of drift into let me just take a deep breath, take a step away and not fixate on what I don't like. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Here's the thing. So I was like talking out loud to myself before we were doing this. And I was like, well, I like, you know, people don't hate this one. Then I was like, well, I don't know. People kill their spouses at like huge rates. And maybe I just don't know anything. But I think that people get married for the wrong reasons. I think people get married because they feel like it's time to get married and not because they actually like the person. I feel like people feel a lot of familial pressure to get married. I think there's a lot of negative, like, again, like pressures around marriage. Um, especially for straight people. And I think that 
people end up in these relationships that if they had given them a little bit more time, probably wouldn't have worked out, but it's too late. They're already in the relationship. Maybe they've already had a child. Like there's these people who are like, I'm trapped and I have to, you know, be because either financially, I see a lot of stuff of like people financially trapped in these relationships. Um, So sometimes it's like not like that you really love the person and you're just like want to, you know, you're having problems. It's like sometimes these people are just like straight up like married and they're married and they're both in these bad situations. And it doesn't even have to be abusive. It doesn't even have to be like, you know, emotionally abusive or anything like that. It's just like two people who should not be together. And that is like something that we've just decided is fine. Yeah, it's uh, it's a tricky thing, right? Because I'm like currently writing a book on marriage. I've like been thinking about it and like talking to a lot of people about it. And, you know, like I, I think that people have different expectations for marriage, right? So some people don't expect it to be that great, right? So then when the reality is not that great, they're like, well, whatever. This is what I thought it'd be. I thought it'd be yeah. just like, you know. And then there are people that expect it to like, really be based in like connection and intimacy and partnership. And so when those things aren't there, they're like, oh, no, this is not what I sign up for. I'm willing to either really put in time and effort to get it to that place or I'd rather just walk away. And so I think that a a tricky thing that can happen is someone having a really low expectation of marriage, being with someone who has a higher expectation of marriage. And then you have this like awkward push and pull because one person's like, I don't want to put in the work to fix this because I never expected it to be that much of anything in the mm-hmm, first place. Yeah. And so I think that like, again, like pushing this this narrative of like marital hatred is normal or common or okay and not a sign of like anything dire, then it, it gives that that low expectation partner ammo to be like, it's fine that we hate each other. Like we don't need to work on our problems. Like we don't need to work on the fact that you don't feel heard or respected or anything. Yeah. Like, this is what it's like. Yeah. When when I was saying earlier that it was like common, I meant in a way that like people should be working on it, not in a way of like just accept it and be done with it. I meant like it's common that a lot of people go through this. But like I think mm. it's important to to see it and know it and then do something about it. Right. The article is kind of like it has a nuance where it's talking about, well, you shouldn't idealize relationships. And they say, oh, I just wish someone would say there's Harry and Shirley for the first 20 years. They fought like cats and dogs. He actually left her for a year and took up with another woman. Then they managed to work it out and settled down. And now they're pretty okay. Aren't they adorable? And I get that because I feel like people I feel like sometimes I feel nuts because I'm like, this is the truth of this relationship. But people skip over that part and they just go, oh, my God, look at them. Aren't they so perfect? Aren't they so adorable? And it's because no one we've talked about on the show. No one talks about the reality of being in a relationship. However, I think that that is wildly different than they fucking hate each other. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's different levels to it all. Yeah. Like. I mean, look, we want people to to be have the space to be like, my relationship isn't perfect and it doesn't have to be perfect all the time. And I totally get that. But I also I see so many conversations where it's like men hate women and women hate men. And it's like, then why are you together? (laughs) (laughs) But they don't have any they've never seen any other examples they don't know. They don't know that there's something else out there. Maybe they've only seen their parents. Maybe they've only seen their friends who hate their husbands, whatever it is. Like there's this really toxic 
like idea, right? So like, I don't know if I've talked, I talked about this maybe, but like when I looked like a girl, Mal and I went to a furniture store and the saleswoman was like talking to me and ignoring Mal and was like, oh, Mal was like, I think we would want a couch here. And she was like, let me talk to the person who knows what's going on in the house and was just like negging and being shitty to Mal the whole time. And and there was one point where she was like, yeah, we'll get like the protection, you know, the three year guarantee because of your dog. And then she turned to me out of earshot of Mal and went, we know it's for him, though. Right. And I was like, oh, you're making a sale because you think I hate my husband. Wow. Yeah. And I and Mal, God bless them, was outside being like, why was she so mean to me? <laughs> and I was like, because she thinks you're a dumb husband. Wow. Yeah. But um, I'm glad that there's been a lot of pushback about the article, like a lot of people being like, actually, you shouldn't hate your spouse. I mean, again, being frustrated with your spouse. Yes. Being angry with your spouse. Definitely. Feeling um, rejected, that moments of rejection will happen. Moments of disconnection will happen. Like it is not going to be like a perfect union, but falling into hatred and feeling like, and oh, it's okay there. for me to stay here. Yeah. Or even like falling into it at all. Like that's probably a signal that like something is amiss that maybe we can, we need to like re reconnect or re or reconfigure. reframe it to be like, I hate when you do this, mm-hmm. but I don't hate you. Yeah. I hate when you X, Y, and Z, but I don't hate you as a person. Mm-hmm. I figured it out. I solved it. <laughs> I also wasn't thinking of it in like like the hate like resentfulness of it. I was thinking more of it like a casual hate. If that makes like like the quiet quitting isn't actually quitting. Like yeah, it's just yeah, doing your job right. But I feel like this. Well, in both senses, the yeah. the phrase, the catchphrase, is misleading. And misleading, yes, exactly. And so if you don't know the nuance of what exactly. the phrase actually right, means, right, right. it's easy to like fall into a trap with right, it. Right, right. And like you know, have all these boomers be like, all these people are quite quitting, and it's like, no, they're just doing their job. They're also <laughs> like, like you know? I fucking hate. You know, your parents like each other. Yeah, they do. They seem to. Yeah. Wow. I call them. They're just playing little games together. Uh, they play a lot of cards, play this my, game called Quirkle quite a bit. My aunt and my uncle loved each other, didn't have marital hatred. There you go. They get they have fights, they have tension, they of have course. whatever, but yeah, like it's an undercurrent of friendship and appreciation. Oh, this was the other thing I wanted to say is like I saw this great couples therapist on TikTok talking about how like people are always like communication is what matters. You need communication. But she was like, communication won't help if the two people don't respect each other. (laughs) Like if you don't have, and that's what I feel like this kind of gets to. Like if you get to a point where you hate each other, it is kind of hard to get back from that. Like, and so there's like active work to be done to like kind of prevent, prevent yourself from going into that mindset of, of like what Gabby said of like, I hate this moment or I hate this action, but not letting you glom it onto the whole person and their whole essence. Um, and so, yeah, like if you have that fundamental disrespect or hatred, like that's a lot to work through more than just like disconnection, bumps in the road, that yeah. kind of thing. It's hard when you're married. It's hard when you're already married. And I think we pressure people into getting married. I mean, I'm 34. I think there was pressure when I was younger, not from my mom. My mom hates marriage, but like, you know, to get married, like you're in a relationship for a couple. I was like 21 to 24 in a relationship that was like three years long. And it was like, when are you guys going to get married? And I was like, I'm 24. Mm -hmm. Like we pushed way too much. We put way too much emphasis on marriage. 
Yeah, I think and it's shifting. Spicy take: Your partner should be able to get on your health insurance, even if you're not married. Okay, agree. What do we rate this episode? I'll give it a thirty out of twenty-five little hats. Oh yes, very good. I rate it eleven out of ten. Raising your children differently based on what they need. I will do sixty-four out of fifty-nine. Living alone in a flat for the first time. Cheerio, a flat. I know, I said flat. I took a risk. I got an email uh, to Bad With Money, and it was someone saying, hi, I'm so-and-so from Australia. And then in parentheses, it said, please don't do the accent. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, thank you to Kelly Richardson Lawson for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa Diamond Monts. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Tracy Soren. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or on our channel, youtube.com slash show. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, at Allison Raskin, at She Is Not Melissa, at Gabby Road, Emotional Support Lady Substack, Patreon.com slash Gabby Dunn, and also Allison's book, Overthinking About You. Go and leave a Goodreads or an Amazon review. Um, you can also go to Scribd and see my book, Stimulus Rack. But Allison's, give them reviews. Okay, bye! Forever Dog.